This episode of The Clear Out was recorded late at night on the 3rd of May 2022 at home in Wicklow. And it is episode 50. Episode 50. Well done. Well done if you've stayed with me. And well done to me for staying with myself. It ain't easy, I can tell you. This episode is a hard lean into Puritanism and persecution and contrition and atonement and piety and sanctimony and it all comes from a starting point of addiction. <laughs> My own addiction really is uh, is, is the main is the main driver of um of what I'm talking about today my addiction to sugar and the the little catalyst was um a family dispute here in hashtag blessed over my daughter's sugar intake and I'll uh, I'll elaborate more in the episode um but it got me thinking about puritanism and the, the judgment of those who are perceived to be impure and the desire to make them pay. And ultimately I get to um, quite a, an in-depth discussion of Arthur Miller's The Crucible and the McCarthy era um, communist witch hunts that took place in uh, the 50s in the United States. I also look at Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and look at the persecution of uh, Jews during the Second World War. Um, and yeah, it, it's um, it, it's quite a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a whopper. It's a bit of a bumper episode because there was just a lot of meat to to get into and to try and digest and understand um but i think it's really good i think it's a really good episode and there are like there were a few other things that occurred to me after i recorded um other areas that i, I could have gone into i wanted i realized i could have spoken about how puritanism is also a a fear of godlessness and i was wondering like what like, what's that look like today because i was comparing the Puritanism of the Crucible and of certain historic um, eras of the past with modern cancel culture and woke culture and how that has a very puritanical streak and a very puritanical zeal running through it and carries with it the desire to punish others. And I'm not sure what the what God is being worshipped there, the God of subjectivity the god of hypersensitivity um i don't know it's it's it anyway i i go into it more um in in the episode uh and also i could have dwelled a bit longer on the the nature of informing and that implication the implication of informing on one's you know what it says about one's conscience or the pressure it puts on on one's conscience because the idea of conscience is something that I discuss uh, in this episode quite a lot as well and I didn't sort of explicitly explore that 
like the, the personal cost to inform on others to betray others which is so brilliantly dealt with in the crucible and in um the tarantino movie uh inglorious bastards uh i also didn't think more about how addiction can be um explained in these same terms of of persecution and arthur miller you'll hear later talks about the the concocted terror that forces people or convinces them that they can hand convinces them that they can hand over their conscience and so i was thinking about it in addiction terms and the terror involved in addiction is the terror of doing without the terror of being straight or being clean and that becomes a persecution of itself and so one hands over one's conscience and becomes a slave to that to which one is addicted so i didn't i, I mean there's just three areas i could have gone into more i realized um but i just i it would have made it an extra 45 minutes and it's already a monster episode but then as it happened i thought well you know what it's episode 50 why not go long why not why not indulge and I think as well, uh, a factor was I was I recorded it very late at night and you'll hear it in my voice at the start of the episode. I sound woozy. I sound almost drunk and it was just fatigue. I taught uh, karate earlier that day in my daughter's school and I nearly you know lost my voice. So I was just kind of, uh, it was a tired voice. I think it settled into its normal timbre by the end of the episode. But anyway keep an eye out for that so look here it comes uh get into it enjoy it and as i said at the top thank you so much for uh for sticking with the podcast if you have done so for the last 49 episodes and here you are for number 50 we're almost at the um we're almost we're almost about to celebrate a birthday the birthday of the podcast so thanks again and enjoy the episode i'll see you around the corner cheers Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. <laughs> That's a great start. I don't know why I'm laughing. Um, sometimes that, that, that emphatic high with which I begin each episode of The Clear Out, it just, it just hits my funny bone because there's something incredibly, uh, I don't know, pompous. <laughs> Hi, Dara Clear here. Anyway, enough, enough, enough frivolity. We're about to get into something very serious. This week's episode is, is going to be uh, an exploration of conscience. And this only came to me earlier earlier this evening because i'm actually recording this at night which is not my usual habit but it it seems that this is the only um natural opportunity that i've been presented with to uh to record this week so i need to strike i need to strike now or strike not at all there is there is there is a, a definition of conscious of conscience right off the bat. I need to strike now or not strike at all. A zero sum game. 
uh, to do or not to do, to be or not to be. Nice. Going to bring in the the Shakespearean reference right off the bat. Um, yeah. So before I go into the whys and wherefores, is it is it noteworthy? Noteworthy that this is episode fifty. That's um, that is a milestone. I think I had been you know I've I've been anticipating getting to uh, this number, and I kept thinking ah, I'll let fifty slide by. Fifty two. Surely will be the one because <laughs> I'll that'll be that'll be a full year of the podcast so every week for 52 weeks I will have managed to put out the show put out the the tell as a as I as I wish to refer to it from now on not the show it's the tell because there's nothing to see here folks there's nothing to see just listen listen to the tell um, but in fact, then I was reflecting on it before I pressed record. In fact, it should be episode 53. That should be the celebratory one. Episode 53 will be the, the birthday. Uh, it'll be the, the one year anniversary of the show. So, uh, in any case, I mean, it would seem that I'm starting to celebrate already. Fifty. That 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 is. That seems to be the the. I've heard other podcasts acknowledge their fiftieth episode. Um, but that's it. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, Fifty. The um, the half century has been reached. That's um, that's not insignificant in Test cricket to to score a half century. Uh, gives a batsman or a batswoman uh, a certain credibility. Um, it shows that they've got something. They've got something to offer. It's a teaser because really the century is the ultimate. To score a century in test cricket really is a statement of of what? Of discipline, of excellence, of in a way of above you know above all else it is a, a statement of concentration because that is the ultimate challenge for a quality test bats person if they can stand at the crease for hundreds of deliveries hundreds and hundreds of deliveries because that's what it takes in most cases that's what it takes to score a century of runs, a hundred runs. It requires patience. It requires judgment. Being extremely judicious in one's shot selection. I speak. I speak. <laughs> I speak merely as a part-time spectator, a part-time fan. But this is... Uh, this is what this is what people criticize in in the modern batsman uh and I'm not a student of the the women's game but the the modern the modern batsman often seems to lack discipline and lack patience lacks the ability to just 
to to last an innings to sit in there and block defend spoil and wait for the right ball with which to score runs because the modern batsman has grown up on shorter forms of the game and isn't respecting or honoring the legacy of test cricket and test batsmen of yore anyway that was an unexpected digression episode 50 is about conscience and it was earlier it was earlier today that this uh, this idea popped in my head because <laughs> where did this all start it started with a bit of a domestic dispute between my <laughs> between my wife and my daughter over the consumption of sweets that would be lollies for any australian listeners or candy for those of you who may be tuning in from the the us of a um yes it would seem it would seem it would appear in in recent months my daughter who is eight eight and a half her sweet tooth has been activated now prior to this you know it's not like she hasn't enjoyed sweet things but it has struck myself and my wife that her sweet tooth seems to have kicked on a gear now i'm gonna you know there's gonna be a bit of circling back and um uh, you know again in 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 the spirit of the <laughs> in, in the spirit of the general tenor of the podcast um a circling back to sort of embrace a certain amount of honesty and in that confessional bent of mine i have to put my hand up straight away and going my daughter is the is the daughter of a sugar addict that's right that's right this is all gonna this is all gonna come into the it's all gonna come into the mix today really it took me until i was about 40 years old to address in a serious way my relationship with sugar and the reason i was addressing that relationship is because i'd had to <laughs> i'd had to go through some excruciating experiences in the dentist's chair and hand over excruciating amounts of money to pay for the excruciating experience and I just thought, hold on a second here. This, this, this isn't going to work. Um, and maybe around that same time, as part of a bit of a shift in how I was sort of minding myself and managing myself and trying to put some new habits in place, I seemed to have a, a bit of an epiphany and looked at my my sort of i suppose i suppose to use the word dependency my dependency on sugar my relationship to to sugar and sweets and how i would use them as a sort of a a comfort blanket and would sit down with my other great comfort blanket which is movies i'd sit down to watch a movie or two on my laptop late at night 
and I might have a, a bag of um, opal fruits, uh, laterally, laterally known as uh, Starburst. I might have a bag of Skittles. Um, I don't know, sugary, chewy candies, lollies, sweets. I mean, I'm a guy who literally used to eat bags of fizzy sugar. That was my go-to, my number one, my number one uh, confection of choice was a product known as a dip dab, a dip dab, which was basically a bag, a paper bag of sherbet, powdery, fizzy sugar. And in that bag of sherbet was a lollipop, uh, a rectangular shaped strawberry flavored lollipop and i would gleefully consume dip dabs bags of dip dabs one after another its cousin the sherbet fountain which was a cylindrical package out of which protruded a sneaky stick of licorice or licorice if you prefer that was a cylinder a paper cylinder full of fizzy <laughs> fizzy sugar sherbet and you'd dip your <laughs> sorry you'd dip your licorice stick in the white powder and suck that stick <laughs> until you'd be left with this little stump of sticky licorice licorice um and be kind of tipping the last bit of sherbet onto it uh, a great combination I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, it and I mean, I, I'm I'm jumping across myself here, but I mean, this is you can hear the way I'm speaking. This is the the cadence and the emotional response of an addict. I mean, I'm already feeling this kind of frisson of of nostalgia of of appetite as well and this is surely how people and i mean it feels i i feel um like I'm, I'm 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 cheapening or lessening the seriousness of addiction to more serious substances or more adult substances as in obviously alcohol or or drugs um one can be addicted to sugar of course um and the way i can visualize those those products uh, that i just described and not only that but i can instantly recreate in my mind the sensation of that sherbet dissolving on my tongue <laughs> and believe me it doesn't make me shudder it it I'm, I'm if, if anything I have a shiver of pleasure, as I recall, uh, that 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 fizz and dissolve over my taste buds, um, and you're thinking yeah cool that's all you know that's that's normal enough, um you know you probably had a lot of those guys when you were a kid yes I did, but believe me I was still, I had a friend go back to Ireland when I was in Melbourne. And she said, can I bring anything back from Ireland? And I said, yeah, get me some dip dabs. So I was in my 30s. 
and she was bringing me back dip dabs from Ireland. Um, so what I'm trying to say is when my daughter uh, is sort of um, displaying an evident interest in consuming more sugary products, a certain alarm bell goes off in me and she and my wife had a little tete-a-tete earlier today um, over, yeah, o- over this very topic, you know, are you eating, are you eating too many treats is often, is, is usually our, our word of choice when we're describing uh, anything in that area. And my daughter will be like, can I have a treat? Any chance I can have a treat? And, you know, by my standards, I look at my daughter and go, my goodness, this is one extremely uh, abstemious and controlled consumer of sugary products because my daughter will typically have one or two little things a couple of times a day maybe um if even that i mean i'm talking like that would be at the weekend and on a school day she would have a treat when she comes home from school um but today my daughter my wife collected her from school and my daughter um persuaded my wife to allow her to get something from the shop and then my daughter has to come face to face with her big dilemma. She goes into a shop. Now, I, my daughter and I had an amazingly fun day in Dublin um, a couple of weeks ago during the Easter holidays. We had a great day trip to Dublin and we took in, we took in a lot of good stuff. And, you know, a, couple, you know, a gallery and a museum. And my daughter had some money that had been burning a hole in her pocket. And we went to a big toy shop and she got some toys that she wanted to get. And... We um, we had uh, refreshments in a fancy hotel and at the end of the day, my aunt and uncle took us out to dinner in a nice little Italian restaurant. It was really just a, a great, great day and testament to how great the day was. The following day, when we were just mooching around at home at hashtag blessed, my, my daughter was quite flat and she was flat um, because the fun day was over and she didn't want it to end and yeah yeah it was uh, and i said look don't worry you know we'll go again we'll go again and we'll we'll bring we'll bring mama the next time we go but it was it was really nice it was it was her first time in dublin being old enough to really kind of take it in and enjoy the experience and of course selfishly um i loved it because it was a uh, a father and daughter day and it really couldn't have gone any better um and it was really nice to be her her guide and her her chaperone and yeah it was really um we don't do that a lot and haven't had the opportunity to do that a lot so it was uh it was quite special now why am i mentioning that though um because why 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 now there was some connective tissue. <laughs> I've just lost myself in a in a fatherly reverie. There was a reason for bringing up the day trip to Dublin. What was it? Gosh, I don't know. There were some treats that day. Is that why I was mentioning it? We had donuts. There was a, a fizzy, a fizzy lemon drink. Fanta, which I I read just the other day, is no longer going to be uh, produced or available on the market here in Ireland. Uh, no, no great loss. I was never, I was never really a Fanta man. I always liked Club 
which is an Irish producer of soft drinks. Um, yeah, Club Orange or Club Lemon was my my soft drink of choice, my fizzy drink, my soda of choice. Uh, but anyway, oh yeah, that's why I was mentioning. I know why. the 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 dilemma my daughter experiences when she's faced with a large range of things that she knows she's you know she's been given the she's been given the permission yeah go ahead get yourself something and she gets frozen by oh my god what should i pick uh and i was laughing earlier today because she was getting you know she's quite quite um getting quite stressed because my wife was quite annoyed with her over the sugar consumption and um it was just a bit of a family moment and um my daughter was getting a bit upset and she was having a bit of a cry and she was being quite contrite and I was trying to console her. Um, and again, I, I mean, I have to rush in here and go, I don't think my daughter's sugar consumption is excessive. Um, and I'm going to draw a line back to this as, as, as the discussion continues. Um, I do not think my daughter's sugar consumption is excessive, but, you know, I'm happy uh, in my attempts to be a responsible parent to you know to keep an eye on it and to certainly plant the seed with her that it's a good idea to consider alternative snacks alternative uh, less unhealthy snacks at times um, and just to, to 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 raise that little flag with her so she can take some responsibility for for it herself in any case she you know when we were talking about it um earlier and things were a little bit tense and there's a bit of crankiness going around and i was pointing out well yeah like you know you find it difficult when you're in a shop to to, to choose something um, and like my wife and i would probably have a little bit of an old school position of listen you should just be grateful you're getting anything <laughs> because we are the products of our own parenting and we both kind of throw back to, you know, very much older times when, you know, have a biscuit and, you know, be very grateful that you're getting anything at all. And we've, we probably have a little bit of that in our own parenting approach with our daughter. But my daughter, you know, when she was getting a bit upset, she was saying, yeah, it's really difficult because there's lots of things I see in the shop that I'd really like to get. But they're Nestle products. They're Nestle and I can't get Nestle. Now, <laughs> if there, there may be a couple of you out there listening to this who know me quite well and have known me for some time. And you might know that, or you might remember that I have been conscientiously boycotting Nestle products for 30 years. I signed some petition when I was in university and... Some Nestle, um, Nestle sort of behavior, the behavior, some actions of Nestle, some very dubious, uh, unethical actions of Nestle were brought to my attention, and ever since then I've been like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to knowingly spend money on Nestle products, and I laid the 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 incidents out for my daughter at some point. Um, in the uh, in in the recent past, and my daughter's latched onto it, <laughs> and 
and then she faces the torture of going into a, a sweet shop and going oh my goodness like 40 percent of the products here uh i can't buy because i'm not going to buy a nestle product and she's eight and she's got to wrestle with this this kind of moral dilemma um and i'm thinking yeah maybe i should just absolve her of that burden and go listen you let your let your own conscience dictate what you should do so i was this got me thinking earlier and it's what led it's what has led me to today's theme um because i'm there was a part of me that was thinking earlier my my first thought around this topic of eating treats and sweets and lollies and candy and chocolate and sugary things there's a part of me that goes okay let's not get too hysterical about this because we are not we are not trying to to administer some puritanical regime we're not trying to to you know exert this puritanical power and impose strictures and an extremely um you know ascetic regimen on ourselves or on our daughter so that was my first thought my first thought was this is you know we're we're not we're not puritans we're not trying to live some you know extremely pure beyond reproach life um and that was my initial thought and that thought got me thinking about puritanism and i think my next thought was the frame around cancel culture which i've I've spoken about a few times and spoke about um i spoke about very recently uh two episodes ago i was talking about cancel culture uh woke culture identity politics and i was discussing it in terms of what society tolerates and doesn't tolerate and what we should and shouldn't tolerate and i argued that cancel culture was um extremely juvenile a very juvenile form of morality the extreme intolerance of shutting people out of no platforming people um and when i was thinking about puritanism earlier i was going yeah of course i mean it's a very puritanical um it's a very puritanical driver you know beneath cancel culture and there's a very puritanical driver informing a lot of woke commentary uh highly precious highly subjective and something i'll touch on a little bit later it can take on a certain religiosity and a certain piety that begins to resemble not tolerance and not a a diversity of um a diversity of thinking um a a diversity of understanding but in fact a very prohibitive and prescriptive way of thinking and understanding and engaging with society and with the world um 
And so, yeah, so I, 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 I kind of, I was jumping, my brain was kind of moving to that territory. Um, but then, again, I was just thinking of this idea of, of, of Puritanism and wanting to appear to be, to be right and wanting to appear to be pure and then how puritanism can be informed by a certain a certain zealotry a certain religious zeal a certain uh, adherence to religious values or spiritual values and that adherence becomes an it becomes a vehicle or a pathway to to a self-appointed superiority and a self-appointed higher position from which judgment is passed down and of course then we get into areas of of once you have judgment being passed down you get into areas of of guilt and contrition and shame and atonement and things start to take on, yeah, very religious notes and very sort of fundamentalist notes and very extreme notes of intolerance. And the, I mentioned, you know, being i mentioned being subjective earlier but so you know subjective not only in perspective and one's subjective viewpoint but also subjective in terms of subjecting uh subjecting people to to judgment and subjecting victims or um subjecting penitence to to punishment um as as the road to atonement, as the road to forgiveness, as the the road to purification. Um, now, as I talk this through and lay it out, I mean, all of this stuff makes me want to, to, to scream. Uh, I feel very resistant to a lot of these notions. Um, and yet, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was jokingly sort of thinking to myself, well, it's... You know, it, it's probably how my my three brothers perceive me as the sort of <laughs> as as the Puritan. Um, arguably, arguably, my parents perceive me this way also, um, because I'm the the non the the, the sole non. I mean, I, I'm hesitating to say non drinker because I do drink a little, but I didn't drink at all until I was in my mid to late twenties, and. You know, compared to how the rest of my family uh, consume alcohol, um, I consume in a very uh, a minor way. Um, and as my, my, my cousin here at Hashtag Blessed likes to say, I'm not really a drinker at all. And I don't smoke, I never have. And I don't do drugs, and I never have. Unless you call, you want to call sugar a drug, and you want to call caffeine a drug as uh, some pedants uh, are wont to do. 
but I'm seen as the uh, yeah the the <laughs> the the goody two shoes. Um, more on that another time, perhaps. Although I will briefly, I will briefly share one little story from from a few years ago. My daughter, when we brought her to Ireland from Australia for her first visit to Ireland, she and she'd be too young to remember this, really. But um, it's it, it's really just to kind of illustrate. Uh, something here and um yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know how appropriate this is however i'm going for it so we my wife and i brought our daughter home with us to ireland from australia for a holiday uh about seven years ago and at that time and it had very recently happened my youngest brother found himself as a a guest of the state he was in prison in um, one of Dublin's most famous prisons and it was there that we brought my my daughter to meet him and so he could so he could meet her we we visited him as a as a little group I think it was my wife my daughter our daughter myself and another one of our brothers my older brother I think we all went in to visit my youngest brother just to say hello and he was um he was coming to the end of a a sentence and had been out on probation but had had messed up and found himself back in to just finish the, the the remaining time he had to serve anyway grand before i went back to australia i paid him a solo visit at the prison and we had a, a bit of a chat and for um for reasons i won't go into now i had to i had to visit him um in a single cell which was uh, separated by a a glass screen um so i was on one side of it and he was on the other and we had a bit of a chat and he he was talking about the the life he anticipated having uh, in the future and it was um quite idyllic and um he was sort of depicting scenes of pastoral hippie bliss um certain hedonistic pleasures still being in indulged and enjoyed and i i felt uh i, I felt com- compelled to kind of go hold on hold on there a second buddy how how exactly is this going to uh, transpire how is it going to unfold? I mean, look at where you are at the moment. Um, and, you know, up until that point, my brother had been, you know, had been putting on a really, um, a very typical, uh, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, throw shade at him um, or, uh, you know, assassinate his character. But, his most comfortable mode of interacting with the with the world um leads him to kind of present as being very sort of happy go lucky and uncaring of consequences and there's a certain uh, a certain lingo that he's cultivated over the years that's has a lot of sort of you know, hippieish um 
you know, phraseology and new age lingo um, interspersed with everything he says. So everything vaguely, everything kind of is, is vaguely and, and generally, you know, positive and pseudo-spiritual and, you know, eco-friendly and, you know, all these different things. And in that moment, I found myself just kind of and, and not in an antagonistic way but just sort of calling bullshit on it and kind of going hold on a second let's let's have a bit of a reality check here you know let's let's look at where you are and let's look at what the the real pathways to that future are and how likely they are or maybe are not at this point in time and i clearly touched a nerve because my brother sort of dropped the um that front with which he's more comfortable and he just looked me you know dead in the eye with a very different face and quite a different voice and just said to me don't project your sobriety onto me (laughs) which i was kind of going yeah yeah sure say to you like that's a that's a very unambiguous uh, unambiguous riposte and a very clear this is the boundary and you're not going to cross over it so back the f away um and then he just sort of resumed from where he had been uh you know been before and, and carried on but it was just a, a very clear red light red card uh come no further thou shalt not pass um but uh, you know and so what 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 got, what, I, what I was thinking about in 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 terms of you know why i mentioned that 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 incident is i was the puritan in that scenario like my puritanism now I, i'm not saying you know objectively I'm not saying that I'm living you know, a puritanical life, but in that moment, that's how my brother perceived, perceived it, and perhaps maybe still does perceive it, that I'm the, the clean living one, the pure one, the one who does lots of exercise, the one who doesn't really put much um, you know, in the way of, of bad things into my system. Um, in fact, <laughs> in fact, my system is so pure that prior to going to Australia, where, when I was uh, a regular, <laughs> just to add to the goody two shoes image, I, w- I was a regular blood donor um, here in, in, in Ireland. And I, I, I haven't resumed that um, since I became back, mostly, I think, because of the, the, the pandemic. So it's something I'd probably I'd like to pick up again. I did it when I was in Melbourne as well but the um the the irish blood donor service used to ring me and ask me to come in to give neonatal donations so (laughs) so basically my blood was so pure that they wanted it for the little babies the little neonatal babies they're like get this guy's blood in here it's unblemished 
untinged, untainted. Um, <laughs> so, so there you go. Listen, you, you do you know do what you will with that little bit of information. Um, but yeah, it, it, it back to the the, the prison um, conversation with my brother. I was the Puritan in that situation, and so the feeling is then that for my brother um that i was the one doing the judging i'm handing down the judgment and he's basically saying and he's fully in his rights to do so don't you judge me and don't impose your your value system on me and there is something so profoundly righteous and so profoundly resilient and so profoundly admirable in that that um, I, I, I have to I just have to take my hat off to my brother in that moment um, but yeah anyway and, and, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know go somewhere with this in a second because um someone else has thoughts in this area um so i did say at the start of the episode i mean i wanted to talk about conscience and you know what what conscience what conscience is i suppose and what it what it leads us to do and what it leads us not to do and where it comes from um and it's funny i think the first time i engaged with the idea was when uh the vice principal of my secondary school described me as being conscientious and at the time i didn't know what that meant and so i looked it up and was like okay so fundamentally if you're conscientious you're someone who um someone what someone who is led by their conscience or someone who gives a lot of credence to their conscience someone who thinks morally before they act i suppose um now i suppose when a a student is being you know when a high school or a secondary school student is being described as conscientious by a teacher um usually that falls into the area of fundamentally you're a good student who does their work and does their homework <laughs> i think it's as it's as unimaginative as that but i can tell you now that coming from that man i took it very seriously because he was not a man to be trifled with so this man who I have hmm, I've no idea if he's if he's still alive or not. He could well be. But his name is was Paddy O'Sullivan and he was from Cork and he was not a tall man. In fact, he was a short man and he walked with a stoop. And that stoop seemed to be the reason he had the nickname Duck and it's only now talking about it that i realized i <laughs> i always assumed that he was um the nickname came from the animal 
but there's no real reason for that. So maybe it was because he had that little kind of stoop um, and it's kind of or across his shoulders. Maybe that's why he was called Duck. And there was no there was no um, connection to uh, the beloved water bird. He used to wear a mid-length leather jacket, black leather. And yes, if you associate that, you might associate that with the Gestapo. That wouldn't be an unreasonable connection to make with this particular member of the teaching fraternity. Because he was, there was something of the interrogator about him. He was quiet. He was absolutely not to be messed with. He didn't put himself about the place in that sort of avuncular, jovial, friendly way that male teachers can often affect. He was quite unapproachable. Um, now, as I got older, I realised he he wasn't unfriendly at all. Actually, he was he was he was quite approachable, but. You know, he was a guy who, when he walked into the room, he'd just stand up <laughs> straight away um, and show respect. He was also an Irish teacher. I remember he conducted my uh, oral exam prior to doing the, uh, the, the the leaving cert, the final state exam you do in Ireland, to the, the, the qualifying exam that will get you into university. And um, he was very nice to me and quite complimentary of my, my Irish Um long long fallen by the wayside sadly but yeah he was not someone to be to be to be trifled with and so and and a man who wasn't particularly garrulous so a man of few words so when he described me as conscientious i was like right that's um I, i took it very seriously um and here i see you know referring back to my daughter earlier i I see she's taken on something of this conscientiousness. Um, And she is. I mean, she's a very, listen, I mean, she's a very thoughtful, she's a very thoughtful, considerate little person. And that's what I, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, conscientiousness, that's what I see in her, you know, being considerate and thoughtful and thinking about others. And, you know, earlier when she was feeling, you know, when she was expressing contrition and there was this kind of moment with my, my, my wife and her. And I was just thinking, ah, she doesn't really have to be sorry for anything here. There's, you know, no terrible crime has been committed. Um, and in myself, what I recognize is that I see the, the absurdity of of rules the absurdity of high moral ground the absurd the absurdity of righteous posturing the absurdity of being the face of authority and it's probably something that has always and and I've known this for a long time I've recognised this for a long time and it's probably something that's always undermined me as um, or something that I've allowed undermine my sense of rightness to be a teacher or to be holding forth about anything. 
Although, clearly, it hasn't stopped me doing 50 episodes of this bloody podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, to, to be to be a teacher and to stand up in front of, of young people um, and to lay down the law and lay down rules and to try and enforce the same. I've always sort of balked at that and resisted it and gone this is nonsensical it's it's preposterous on a level because I'd see I'd look into the eyes of young students and I just see all their wisdom (laughs) and all their instinctive understanding of the preposterousness of the adult world and adult structures and rules and regulations and walk this way, not that way and don't talk when I'm talking and respect what I say. And I was doing it today because I was in my daughter's school today teaching karate to little kids. Um, I guess as young as eight, seven, six, eight, <laughs> I can't count, eight, seven, six, five, five-year-olds. So a room full of hyperactive five-year-olds. And I'm trying to explain to them concepts of control and respect and doing the same for the next class of six-year-olds. And... I had to eject I had to eject a girl from the class who'd struck uh one of her classmates, a smaller boy. She struck him from behind on the back of his head with this this uh hand technique that we call a, a chicken beak um you know a chicken beak strike where basically the hand is in the the, the fingers and thumb join together and the wrist bends over and you've got like a, a chicken beak effect or like a, a chicken ducking its head. And this girl was kind of looking at this technique I was showing the class. Because so I was thinking, I'll go in, they're little, I'll give them some animal-related techniques. That'll be fun. And she just, you know, pulled her hand back behind this boy, little you know boy's head and ju- just did this perfect chicken beak strike to the crown of his head. So he kind of, you know, ducks down, clutching the crown of his head with this kind of awful grimace and wince on his face, going, what the hell? And I'm just like, get out to the girl who did it. Now, one part of me is going, well done. You know, what a brilliant execution of that technique. Um, and she had to sit outside on a on a bench. And that's grand. You know, she... I, 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 I laid I laid down the law about we're not going to be hitting each other. Uh, you, you know, you guys aren't at that stage yet. No one's going to put their hands on anybody else. And so she, the girl in question, took her medicine and went out and sat on the bench. And she was putting her shoes and socks back on. And then at the end of the session, I, I called her back in. So I called her name and, you know, was trying to affect uh, my stern, grown-up voice. And I, I summoned her back inside said you know i said come back in now and she just said why (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, no, there's no why. Just get back in here, which she did. And I'm like, I think she was in the second group, so she's only six. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, so much is wrong about, you know, about, you know, the society that just, and I'm, I'm representing it. I'm being a representative of this. Again, the Puritan. These are the rules. This is how it should be. Do what you're told. Come in. Don't talk. Stand there. Don't touch. Um, and there's a terrible tragedy in in the the suppression of of personality and the suppression of the individual identity that I'm being prescriptive and going you must submit to order um yeah so what you know this is the problem my conscience my conscience in these situations and this is probably what any student of any age that has ever met me in now 20 plus years of either very conventional classroom teaching in my capacity as a substitute teacher or in my capacity as an English language teacher or teaching in a martial arts context. Any student that's stood or sat in front of me recognises this this admission in me, this admission of the joke in this admission of the absurdity of one person putting themselves in a position of authority, one person putting themselves in the position of knowledge, in the position of expertise. Because, because I just go, no, it's absurd. And I mean, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, I recognize, I mean, you know, I'm not a complete moron. <laughs> Not a complete moron. Don't get me wrong. I understand that, of course, in any of these teaching environments in which I found myself, at no point have I not had something to offer. At no point have I not had some area of knowledge or some area of experience or some area of relative expertise that I was able to draw upon to to bring something to the table. Um, and I always own that and recognize that when I step into a, a teaching setting. And I'm never, I'm never ungrateful to be in that position. But there is something in that exchange that I find objectively ridiculous now I'm not sure if I have anything else to say on that very point at this moment but returning to puritanism returning to piety judgment punishment earlier when these thoughts first started pottering around my brain I very quickly thought of one of the great texts of Puritanism 
now I shouldn't say the great text of Puritanism, but one of the great texts of a critique of Puritanism and the hypocrisy of Puritanism. And it is Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And Arthur Miller, the American playwright, who wrote, amongst other things, Death of a Salesman and All My Sons and A View from the Bridge, and may also be famous for at some time, at some point, being married to Marilyn Monroe. Um, a great, great American playwright, a great, great American dramatist. I love his work. Um, and The Crucible was the play that he wrote about the the Salem witch hunts that took place in New England in the... What would that have been? Would that have been the 1800s? Hmm, maybe a little bit earlier than that, in fact. I'm, 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 I'm showing my, my, my lack of historical knowledge. Um, but yeah, we're talking about basically the... The the Protestant founding fathers, uh, the pure, the, the you know the puritanical um, Protestant founding fathers, the Pilgrims of the East Coast of America, back in the early days of the founding of the the you know the American state as we know it now, and the Crucible takes place in Salem and it takes place in a typical community of the time and the crucible is based on historical fact and focuses on um, this community and a young woman who is found romping in the woods with other young women from the community in states of undress and sort of um, sexual sort of hysteria. And the scandalized community wants to know, well, how the hell did this happen? You know, is is the devil at work here? Because we're all good, God-fearing folk. And the young woman who's singled out as the ringleader in her state of fear shifts blame to the wife of a man she had an affair with and claims that the wife and not the man not the husband the wife is a witch and so begins this witch hunt and these trials to establish whether people who have had the finger pointed at them are witches are in the service of the devil in the service of darkness and immorality um the the trials are held to determine if um they should be killed um or not and if they're guilty or not and ultimately the the husband um john proctor who is a skeptic about everything that's going on and who has been sort of slightly iconoclastic, I suppose, and outspoken within the community and kept his distance from the piety and tried to keep to himself, but is known 
in a way in a way because of this is known as a man of conscience and ultimately he is asked to 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 betray himself to save his life and to save the life of his of his wife and he refuses to do so and it, it's you know it's enormously powerful it's enormously powerful drama i was lucky enough to see a great production of it um gosh probably about 20 years ago in the the, the national theater here in the abbey uh, in dublin um as i recall it was own row played uh john proctor very well um but you could do a lot worse you could do a lot worse than to watch the the movie version starring uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as John Proctor, Joan Allen as his wife, Winona Ryder as the accusing um, young woman. Uh, I'm trying to remember who directed that, but I think Arthur Miller wrote his own screenplay for it. So that was made, I guess, in the the mid to late 90s. And it does, it, actually, it, it stands up very well. Um, but in any case... It is, as I say, it's an exploration of of moral panic. It's an exploration of um, of what, what, what's the phrase I want to, to use? Ah, um, oh man, my brain, my brain is failing me. I apologize. I, I want to you know, the phrase that describes when. The, you know, the, the majority just stick together and in the security of sticking together, victimize and discriminate against those who are seen to be wrongdoers. Um, oh, God, I'm furious with myself. I can't think of you're probably there going. This is the phrase you want. Um, this is this is uh, indication of me just being a little bit tired and recording later than I normally do. However, it's the play is a, a powerful, like a, a scorching indictment of of kind of social hypocrisy and of uh, conspiracies of silence and the lies people tell themselves to keep themselves safe and how people will be selfish and turn on their neighbors in the in the pursuit of of self-interest and in the pursuit of survival and miller wrote the play at the in in the 50s at the time in america when anti-communist feeling was at at an all-time high and you know, this was in the wake of the Second World War. This was part of the kind of Cold War dynamics and the culture war between the you know the free West and the um, you know the communist East, um, the two superpowers, you know, America and the USSR, being you know waging this kind of ideological warfare, and. You know, the, the trickle down in the States was this intense anti-communist, anti-socialist fervor 
which was coming down from sort of the 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 right wing um in america the sort of uh you know the, the waspy anglo-saxon establishment and the house for un-american activities was uh, established to to prosecute um un-american agents and un-american individuals and many people were targeted and many people were pressurized and particularly within the arts people were being pressurized to to give names and to give up members of the communist party or people who were suspected of being communists and it was incredibly bitter and acrimonious and some people infamously turned over and gave names um and a director i very much admire uh elia kazan um was one of those figures who who volunteered and cooperated and gave names of colleagues to um the house of un-american activities and to joseph mccarthy who was driving the the puritanical crusade which was based on a sort of a moral panic and moral terror um, and full of righteousness and piety and judgment and an implication of moral superiority um, and a sort of a, you know, an insistence on a very, probably a very demonstrated um americanism that was a rejection of anything leftist socialist communist um and you know the 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 assumption has always been that the crucible arthur miller's the crucible was a response or a reaction to this and a, a response and a reaction to that time in american history and i'm going to in, in a moment i'm going to share miller's own thoughts on this but Miller fundamentally was has has said that his interest had always been there in Salem and his interest in the, the witch trials in Salem had always been there because he was interested in this idea of the the individual sacrifice and the individual sort of submission to terror that would allow an individual to surrender their conscience and thereby surrender their individuality and their identity. And that was the area that interested him and that interested interested him. And that's, it was that the, the McCarthyism and the House of Un-American Activities and the, the, the sort of communist panic that that was just a sort of a coincidence of the time, but it did lend itself, I suppose, like it, it certainly gave a strong backdrop to the play and it definitely coloured how the play was perceived and received. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read to you Miller's own words um, on on the sort of the, 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 the driving idea behind The Crucible. Um, so what he said was, if the reception of all my sons and death of a salesman had made the world a friendly place for me, events of the early 50s quickly turned that warmth into an illusion. 
it was not only the rise of McCarthyism that moved me, but something which seemed much more weird and mysterious. It was the fact that a political, objective, knowledgeable campaign from the far right was capable of creating not only a terror, but a new subjective reality, a veritable mystique, which was gradually assuming even a holy resonance. The wonder of it all struck me that so practical and picayune a cause carried forward by such manifestly ridiculous men should be capable of paralysing thought itself, and worse, causing to billow up such persuasive clouds of mysterious feelings within people. It was as though the whole country had been born anew, without a memory, even of certain elemental decencies which a year or two earlier no one would have imagined could be altered, let alone forgotten. Astounded, I watched men pass me by without a nod, whom I had known rather well for years. And again, the astonishment was produced by my knowledge, which I could not give up, that the terror in these people was being knowingly planned and consciously engineered, and yet that all they knew was terror that so interior and subjective an emotion could have been so manifestly created from without was a marvel to me. It underlies every word in the crucible. And so, you know, if it isn't clear from what you just heard, what Miller is really focusing on is the, the premeditated nature of the persecution and the premeditated nature of the presented threat and the resultant terror in those who were victimized and that's something that he recognized existed in Salem as well going on the historical records he he cites not finding evidence of decency and compassion and human sympathy in accounts of the trials from that time. Um, so, yeah. I'm still trying to think of that phrase from before that's eluding me. And further to that, also from Miller, what he says is, uh, in, in this same area of of Puritanism and in this same debate around the persecution of the individual and what people were willing to sacrifice. He says, above all, above all horrors, I saw accepted the notion that conscience was no longer a private matter, but one of state administration. I saw men handing conscience to other men and thanking other men for the opportunity of doing so. And it was from that that he seemed to want to create a play 
that was extremely incisive, extremely sharp and extremely critical of the you know the, the the cynical morality the hypocritical morality of those leading a campaign of terror um and what i was thinking as I, as i was reflecting on this earlier just trying to kind of do a tiny bit of, of research before I, I pressed record you know miller cites salem but i found myself thinking that as you know Miller being uh, a Jewish man and, you know, a Jewish man of age in the mid-20th century who, and, and as a Jewish American who only avoided serving in World War II because of a, a sports injury, I found myself thinking, surely his views must have been informed by uh, the Second World War and Nazism and Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich and the Final Solution and uh, the persecution of Jews and the, did I say Holocaust already? The Holocaust, the, um, and, and the, 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 again, the systematic prescribed acting out of uh, moral persecution and I just found myself thinking surely surely that must have been in the mix somewhere now in what I've read I couldn't find Miller um, acknowledging that that influence or that backdrop and I mean he wrote the crucible in the 50s so I mean the, the war was probably less than you know had only ended you know less less than 10 years earlier um but surely that was in the mix and if you think of how jewish people had to hide their religion had to hide their faith had to hide the signs that um you know that was that was their identity and that they they hid it and subsumed it to to try and survive that is surely the parallel with with what you know miller was talking about um and that's the parallel that's acted out in the crucible that's the parallel that was there to be seen in the the mid 50s with you know members of uh you know a lot of members of the kind of the arts professions in hollywood and incidentally arthur miller refused to cooperate um and i can't remember i, I can't remember what the, the what the cost was to him oh he was he was blacklisted for a year i think as well but he refused to cooperate with the the house of un-american activities and refused to cooperate with joseph mccarthy um and if you're interested to to explore that um in you know that 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 period um, in american history you could you could you could seek out the George Clooney film from I think it's two thousand and is it two thousand and four? Um, good night and good luck, which is based on the the real historic events of um, the TV journalist Ed Morrow was that his name? Um, going toe to toe with Joseph McCarthy and challenging him, and I think ultimately being successful in discrediting him. 
Um, George Clooney made a very good looking black and white movie in 2004 called Good Night and Good Luck, which which looks into that and, you know, you know, makes those characters come to life very dramatically and in a very satisfying way. Um, But to go back to the idea of um, Nazism and the Jewish persecution, the movie that came to mind, and of course there's so many, but I mean, you could talk about that, the old black and white one, The Mortal Storm, um, James Stewart and Richard Richard Widmark, I think. I've got that right. No, wait, or is it Robert Stanwyck? I think Robert Stanwyck. Um, but never mind that. I was thinking of Inglorious Bastards, uh, the Tarantino movie from 2009. And it's a movie I don't love. Some people rate it very highly. I thought the, and I may have said this before on the podcast, I think basically if you removed all the American actors um, from the movie, you'd have a very good film. But the, the I found the American actors and Brad Pitt, chief, chief among them, they just kind of gurned their way through the movie um, just with these kind of grating, egregiously over-the-top scenery-chewing um, performances which just weren't that interesting. Whereas all the non um, the non American actors did really good work, um, and I include like Michael Fassbender, um, even um, Mike Myers, because <laughs> uh, he's he's Canadian, not American. Um, but the opening sequence is phenomenal. The opening scene of the movie is one of the best things Tarantino's ever done, in my opinion. And in that, you have this chilling scene where uh, a little cavalcade of Nazi officers and soldiers arrive at this beautiful French farmhouse and the, I I shouldn't say officers plural, it's one officer played by Christoph Waltz who is the chief Jew hunter in the you know, in the world that Tarantino creates for the movie um, set in World War Two, and yeah, Christoph Waltz plays the chief hunter of Jews, and he arrives at this farmhouse having been given reliable information that at that farmhouse there are Jewish people being uh, being hidden, being protected by um, collaborators. Um, well, collaborators with the resistance, but the collaborators were the. Cl- the collaborators collaborate with the Nazis. Does it work both ways? Um, so it's just this chilling, tense scene where the German officer lays out his his sort of, you know, really repugnant... I'm saying that as, as, the, as the audience member, we're repelled. Um, and repulsed by his distaste and his revulsion of Jewish people and he compares them to to rats to to vermin um but and he, and ultimately he forces the the French farmer to to concede that they are indeed there hiding under the floorboards upon which they sit and there is a a dramatic and horrible uh, execution from above by multiple 
Nazi machine guns. Um, but it is a brilliant scene. And like, again, what it does is it, it thinking about, again, the idea of Puritanism and judgment from above and moral superiority. And in this case, the, the belief in racial superiority this lends itself to the Puritanism and it lends itself to to um, this discussion of conscience and what should and, and shouldn't be done. Um, and in, in the case of the Tarantino scene, the French farmer has acted on conscience and has tried to protect the, you know, the righteous people, um, you know, the victims of the, you know, the, of, of Nazi terror. But ultimately, he has to save his family and put their safety above that of the Jewish people are trying to hide. Um, and he has to make that choice. And he has to give in. He has to give in to the terror of, even though it's wrong and he knows it's wrong, he has to give in to the terror. Well, if I don't do this, I'm going to be killed. So it's rather them than me. Um, and is that is that the lesser of two evils? Should he have sacrificed his family as well? That is for each individual to to decide, and that's the that's the burden of conscience. Um, because only ultimately, there's only one person who lives with the with the with the acts of their of their conscience, and that's that's you, and that's me. Just ordinary people and to return to Miller's point that was one of the things that astonished him and disappointed him that people that he had previously had a relationship were now not even acknowledging him in the street because they were they had been completely negated by the terror the terror of being put before the the terror of being put before those who would judge them and publicly punish them and prosecute them and Miller expressed that in those terms of seeing men hand over their conscience to the state or to state administration and handing it over to other men and being grateful to them for allowing them to do so. And if I return to my point then about uh, the the machinery of Nazism as our as our model for a machinery of persecution, how many Germans are Nazi collaborators handed over their conscience to to Hitler, to Nazi ideology? to state doctrine how many people just put their conscience on hold for the duration of the war um you, you know the war that was built upon this idea of you know wiping out an entire race of people for the the betterment of the the german state and the third reich and i think that is Miller's ultimate point and why he makes John Proctor the the moral the true moral hero of the crucible is because his conscience 
dictates he will not he will not besmirch himself by lying about what he believes and he will not besmirch his name and that's you know again one of the dramatic lines from the play that you know that's all i have is my name and i'm not going to sully it by pretending to be something i'm not just to satisfy the the hypocrites the moral hypocrites and therefore the true act of conscience especially when the stakes are as high as they can be life or death that is a profound assertion of identity and it's a profound assertion of of courage and hearkening back to the story about my brother earlier it's it's i mean it's admirable to the point of being you know very moving um moving inspirational and instructive um (laughs) so yeah so there you go so here are two quotes about conscience uh one from mark twain so you should rightly expect something humorous and he says a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory (laughs) which which i like a lot um i am beyond reproach what about this thing oh yeah i forgot about that okay i'm not beyond reproach um in slightly less humorous terms in more psychological terms um Freud said, conscience is the internal perception of the rejection of a particular wish operating within us. I'm going to read that one again because that that requires a second listen, I think. Conscience is the internal perception of the rejection of a particular wish operating within us. So, that's tricky as you would expect with freud um so his argument is that the wish is in us to do something there's a desire in us to do something that we recognize is bad and our conscience is the alarm system that flags it and goes hold on a second here now that's challenging Because I think the way a lot of us understand conscience is I don't have the desire to do that thing because I'm a good person. And my conscience conscience signifies to me that I'm a good person because I recognize that it's bad and therefore I don't want to do it. Now, using Freud's uh, construction, it would seem he's arguing, as he would, bloody Freud, He's arguing that, oh no, oh no, 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 no. The desire is there. The desire to transgress. I mean, you know, Freud's all, you know, after all, this is a guy who bases his entire psychology on the fact that, you know, all men want to sleep with their mothers. So uh, he's all about uh, the transgressive desire is there in all of us, right, right, you know, right from the, uh, right from the beginning. Um so his argument is, you know, typically everything is about repression. It's all about repressed desires. And of course, 
and I'm going to try and wrap this up because this is going quite long. Of course, that idea of repressed desires and repressed impulses and the repressed shadow, the repressed darkness within, this is what Puritans and Puritanical judgment thrive on. Because, and this is this is where the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy comes in. The Puritans go... This is where we'll get that guy because we know he has that stuff in him. So let's just bring that out. We'll bring that out under duress and finally he'll confess and then we can kill him. Or then we can punish him so severely and eradicate his personality so comprehensively that he will assimilate and become one of us. And of course, the thing is, the only way they recognize and know with such confidence that those desires or those transgressive um, impulses lie within the other is that they have them within themselves and that's the hypocrisy so I mean that speaks to some other things I spoke about recently on the podcast talking about homophobia and because my argument was well I think a lot of homophobia is based on you know repressing the homosexual longing in the the homophobic person Um I mean, I'm not saying that that accounts for every incident of homophobia, but I think it's very much in the mix. Um, And there can be a puritanical aspect to homophobia. The, you know, the, 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 you know, blocking out the sin. um, uh, You know, suppressing it, squashing it, scorching it, burning it out, killing it. Um, That's a very, you know, it's very puritanical and brings us back then to the what I described earlier as this this the, the you know the, the juvenile morality of cancel culture. We cannot make the world into this sterile place where that, that only contains the things that we like. Nothing could be more infantile. Nothing could be more ridiculous. We. It just doesn't work that way, does it? We're just a messy, dirty, mixed up, hypocritical, contradictory species. And we're always going to be. There will be no further evolution. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Probably. That's a very dystopian note on which to end the episode. But I, I feel I feel I must I feel we must end here. Um, I, I I'm sure I had something else I wanted to say about about wanting to see people suffer. So like that's a part of it as well to to you know to show contrition um, and to show a desire to atone seems to seems to come with. The, the puritanical vision, the puritanical mission. So I will punish myself to absolve myself of sin. So the hair shirts and the whipping and living in a very austere way. Um, you know, the, 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 the black clothes, the spare furniture. Architecturally um, and aesthetically, you know, uh, with, you know, stuff that's very really quite appealing I think um, but what it symbolises morally, spiritually not so attractive um, but yeah there's, there's, there's again 
I'm the I'm the clean vessel. You're the unclean vessel. And I want you to break yourself to make yourself clean. Um, so if that's not if that's not sort of a, a projected desire to you know I don't know what is and again just quickly what before I finish and, and I'm sure I mentioned this in an earlier episode I can't remember what the context was but if you want to see in cartoon form that type of puritanical hypocrisy and that repression and specifically sexual repression <laughs> you should go and watch and I think it's from like 95 um, Walt Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame because uh, the the religious figure is it? Oh, I can't remember his name. The character's name is it? Uh, is it Frollo? Is that right? I can't remember. He has an extraordinary. There's an extraordinary sequence in the middle of the movie where he is wrestling with his desire for Esmeralda, the the gypsy dancing girl, um, with whom Quasimodo falls in love. And there's this extraordinary sequence in the middle of the movie where the the animators sort of bring to life the inner turmoil and the inner dilemma of this extremely sadistic, um, cruel religious figure um, who can barely control his 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 repressed desire for the beautiful Esmeralda, voiced by Demi Moore, maybe. Oh, anyway, whatever. Okay, listen, there you go. I, I, I had no idea I was going to go this long or go this far with this. And um, as ever, I, I get to this point of the episode and I'm not sure if it's all cohered. But um, but there you go. That was episode 50. You listened to it. I told it. <laughs> I didn't show it. Thanks for um, listening to the tell. Um, conscience, Puritanism, contrition atonement always always a fun ride here uh, at hashtag blessed and it all started with a, a squabble and a family discussion over the consumption of sweets lollies candy there you go you can throw me some love on social media if you so desire don't repress that desire don't don't be a puritan about it Show me some love on social media. The Clear Out podcast is on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. The Clear Out 2 is on Twitter. You can email me at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. And wherever you're listening to podcasts uh, and listening to this podcast, you will find in the description a supporter link if you want to make a, a one-time contribution, one-time con- financial contribution to this independent podcast. Or if you'd like to become a patron, and make a small regular contribution to uh, to the upkeep of this not show this tell you can do so using the patreon link which you'll also find wherever you're listening but that's uh, patreon.com forward slash the clear out so there you go um thanks for listening and uh, thanks to those of you who've reached out to uh, express appreciation for last week's episode which was about the uh, the deep respondent self um i really got it it's it's great it's great to hear from people um when uh, you've enjoyed something i've put out there um means a lot to me Mo- it motivates me to keep on rocking 
um yeah and look at if you if you if you don't like the show and you think i won't i won't reach out and that'll demotivate him and he'll stop guess again it ain't gonna happen i'm not gonna stop i'm gonna keep doing it so there you go regardless <laughs> okay thanks for listening take care be good to yourselves you know let the uh let that repressed stuff get out and breathe don't hold on too tight don't hold on too tight i think that's the message ultimately of this week's episode don't hold on too tight let it go loosen up a little live a little be good you know but not too good for god's sake because that's no fun at all don't forget to laugh at the joke that we're all a part of yeah okay beautiful okay take care mind yourselves i'll talk to you soon all the best bye (laughs) 